4: Somewhere tonight, a Wells Fargo guard, an ex-Wells Fargo guard, is on the run with $7 million in cash. On the night of the robbery, I had chased a burglar from Flatbush Avenue all around Charter Oak Terrace and was frustrated that he got away with like a bike and maybe a VCR. It's September 12th,
2: 1983. Jack Casey is two years into a 30-year career with the West Hartford Police Department in Central Connecticut. On this night, he's looking for a robbery suspect in a local housing project when he takes a call for a robbery in progress.
4: It comes in, and then we gave the code for a robbery, and then they gave the address, and I said, oh, I'm right down the street. I'll be there within seconds. So, I, of course, I jumped back in my cruiser, I drive up the street, I'm probably here in half a minute, so I'm thinking, okay, I got a good shot of getting these guys.
2: Casey rolls up to what is an unmarked Wells Fargo Depot near the Hartford Town Line. To an outsider, the one-story building appears empty, no signs, nobody around. When he arrives, there's no clear or obvious indication of trouble either. The steel overhead garage doors are closed, Everything appears to be quiet, but Casey is the first officer on the scene and knows better than to go rogue. Plus, he understands if you've got the guts to rob a secured warehouse full of money, chances are you're armed to the teeth.
4: I'm telling them on the radio, hey, have them come out. They said, we're trying. By then, a couple other officers start showing up. So now we're setting up a perimeter because as far as we're concerned, it's an act of robbery. And there's a lot
2: of cash on the line. Inside that nondescript windowless building, there is over $30 million on any given day, a good portion of which is brand new money. Banded bills, consecutive numbers, wrapped in plastic, fresh from the Federal Reserve, ready to be distributed into the population. Dispatch tells Casey to make his way toward the building's rear entrance. So he does. Then. A door swings open to reveal a visibly shaken guard.
4: You could tell he had some marks on his face from the tape or whatever. I think he had a handcuff dangling off of him. And he was really, really upset. And he said, oh, we've been robbed. We've been robbed. Turns out there were
2: two security guards held hostage during the robbery. One appears to have a swollen upper lip. The other still has some tape stuck to his hair from being tied up. Their clothes are ruffled.
4: And then uh, they start telling me a story. The guard they worked with put a gun to their head, threatened them, handcuffed them, tied them up, put them on the floor, loaded up a bunch of money and left. So I said, how much? And he said, five million. And I'm like, what? Now, I'm aggravated because some guy just stole a bike and for two hours I can't find the guy. And at the same time, this guy's stealing five million dollars.
2: That was the initial thought. In a frenzy to report every detail of the crime scene during those crucial first hours, early police reports listed the monetary loss at $5 million. But as it turns out, the amount of money was far greater. The thief actually got away with a total of $7,017,151, an amount equivalent today to nearly $19.6 million. At the time, it was one of the largest cash heists in U.S. history. But stealing $7 million, well, that was just the beginning. My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and author of more than 40 true crime books. What you are about to hear is the true story of a heist, one that funded an international independence movement and sparked an investigation spanning nearly four decades. This is White Eagle. It was a Monday night in mid September. Two Wells Fargo guards, 25 year old Victor Herrera and 21 year old Tim Girard, were getting ready to call it a day. They were en route from Bridgeport, Connecticut to the Smuggler's Inn, a bar and restaurant in Rocky Hill, Connecticut. The last stop of their long day before heading back to the Wells Fargo Depot in West Hartford, Connecticut and clocking out. It's a repetitive job with grueling hours on the road, driving to various banks and businesses around Connecticut and Massachusetts to pick up money and load it into an armored vehicle. One stop after another, pick up, load, pick up, load. And at the end of the day, the reverse. Unload, count, unload, count. Victor Jarena had been at it for a little over a year. Tim Gerard just six months. Guards made just $4.75 an hour, which was about a dollar higher than minimum wage at the time. But a fraction of the millions of dollars in cash they collected and handled each day.
5: For whatever reason, they were shorthanded, uh, probably because it was... a lousy job and nobody wanted it.
2: Ed Mahoney has been a reporter for 30 years, many of which have been spent at the Hartford Current. He was part of the team that won a Pulitzer Prize in the late 90s for coverage of what was at the time a rare occurrence, a shooting rampage in which a Connecticut State lottery employee killed four senior supervisors and then himself. Mahoney's covered politics, local news, and is no stranger to complex investigative crime stories. He explains that the two guards that night were in a rush to get back to the depot. Monday Night Football was on TV, and their boss, 25-year-old Jim McKeon, wanted to go home and watch the San Diego Chargers play the Kansas City Chiefs. But being understaffed, everything was already behind schedule, and there was a half a ton of cash that still needed to be counted, and stacked. According to police reports, when the guards got back to the depot around 9 o'clock, Victor offered to unload the money by himself. His partner, Tim, refused because he'd gotten into trouble in the past for
5: leaving early. He decided to stick her out. So Victor thought it would be he and one other person in the depot, but it turns out it's he and two others. Boss
2: Jim McKean was waiting inside the dispatch office, sitting at a desk to the left of the vault where the money collected by the guards was to be kept. He had one half of the vault's combination, Victor had the other. After Victor helped open the vault, he went back to the truck and began unloading the cash they'd collected that day. 125 bags of coins, which they'd unload later, and 26 bags of currency, which was brought into the vault on a wheeled cart. There are two ways to enter the building's dispatch office. The main way is via a keypad entrance through double steel doors and an observation port. The other is through a bolted door that opens into the garage area, though it can only be unlocked from inside the dispatch office. Basically, the only way to gain access to all that cash was to already be inside.
5: They're sitting there, and they're counting these millions of dollars and stacking it up and making notes and writing up paperwork and running it through adding machines and stuff like that. And Victor kind of maneuvers himself behind this boss who's sitting at the table and slips out the boss's pistol from its holster and says, "Okay, guys, I'm not fooling around.
4: I'm going to shoot you. If you don't do what I'm going to tell you to do. He slapped the other guard and said, hey, this is no joke. And they hear him loading a shotgun and a handgun. So you know what you're thinking in your mind. You're gonna be executed.
2: Boss Jim McKeon would later tell police that he thought he was going to be killed. Quote, all I said was Vic. And he said, Jim, I've got nothing against you. I'm just tired of working for other people.
5: It looks like he had everything with him he needed to restrain one person. But there were two people. So, for example, he had one pair of handcuffs. So he had to, you know, use the handcuffs in combination with some tape and some rope and stuff like that. Both men were gagged
2: in order to lie on the floor. Jim McKeon's hands were handcuffed behind his back. Tim Gerrard was hog-tied with white adhesive tape and nylon twine. Police Chief Francis Reynolds spoke to reporters the following
6: day coats were then placed over their heads, at which time Garina advised the men that he was going to give them a shot that would put them to sleep.
5: It looks like he injected them both, but neither one of them got knocked out. So maybe it's because he divided a dose for one person among two people.
2: That solution, doctors would later analyze through tests, was allegedly a mixture of aspirin and water. The two guards later told police Victor appeared highly agitated. He turned on the intercom to hear if anyone was outside. Tim Gerard said when he started to wriggle around, Victor hit him a few times and warned both men that they'd accidentally choke themselves if they tried to break free.
5: They're incapacitated, they're taped, they're tied up, they're lying on the ground, and they just hear him going back and forth. And they hear zippers like somebody's filling up great big huge gym bags or sleeping bags with cash. It's actually hard to believe someone pulled
2: it off. Victor Herrera emptied the steel vault of all currency with the exception of $1 and $2 bills. He then loaded approximately between 900 and 1,200 pounds of cash into a Buick LeSabre parked in one of the depot's loading bays conveniently out of public view. All this within just 90 minutes.
5: What he was doing was he was... Loading up the cash into bags and stuffing it into the car. And it got to the point where there was so much. I mean, there was barely enough room for him to get into the car. There was so much cash in it.
2: So much, in fact. Victor not only had to take out the car's spare tire and bumper jack to make room for the money, he also left behind a few currency bags worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Victor then got into the Buick, beeped the horn twice and drove out of the depot parking lot.
4: Of course, there's a national alert.
2: Again, Jack Casey.
4: It goes out all across the country. So when we enter it, we say, you know, armed robbery, West Hartford, 7 million. That's gonna catch the eye of most police departments, especially along the I-95 corridor.
2: By that point, Victor Herrera already had a solid lead ahead of law enforcement.
4: We thought that night because they were handcuffed and tied up that he probably figured he's got a lot of time because he's thinking, oh, these guys are probably gonna get found in the morning. So the fact that they were able to wiggle free, hit the alarm, have help get there. But we figured, okay, he doesn't have as much time as he thought, he's not that far ahead of us now. But as it turns out, he was far enough ahead to get away.
7: Start saving now at GameBridge.io. Please visit GameBridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.
3: There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now.
2: The search for Victor Herrera began almost immediately after police responded to the scene. Today, they might have found him within hours. But in 1983, it was far easier to vanish. GPS tracking wasn't available to civilians yet. Pre-9-11, people traveled more freely and could pay with cash. And it would be another 20 years before the majority of the population carried cell phones in their pockets. It was also a chaotic time in the nation. Less than two weeks before the robbery, the Soviet Union shot down a Korean Airlines flight, killing everyone on board, including a U.S. congressman. At the time, there was concern about what it all meant for the US and whether the Cold War would heat back up. President Reagan called the attack
6: barbaric. Our first emotions are anger, disbelief, and profound sadness. While events in Afghanistan and elsewhere have left few illusions about the willingness of the Soviet Union to advance its interests through violence and intimidation, all of us had hoped that certain irreducible standards of civilized behavior nonetheless
2: obtained. In West Hartford, police were busy and rattled. The town had recently been terrorized by a serial arsonist who had been setting fires to local synagogues.
6: We were having a series of arsons uh, in town that appeared to be targeting the Jewish neighborhood. They were high-profile cases. We were getting a lot of heat with them. And uh, it was a lot of hours being put into it. We were flat out.
2: Steve Luby was a detective with the West Harford Police Department. He worked in the Special Investigations Division, a small team mainly focused on narcotics cases, internal affairs and arsons, the latter of which wholly occupied Luby's time that summer. He says up until then, West Harford was a fairly quiet place to work.
6: It was primarily a a sleepier suburb of Harford. Uh, A lot of people would work in Harford that lived there, and they would commute back and forth. We had some murders periodically, Not, not nothing like Harford. You know, the arson cases, that became like national news overnight.
2: Within one week, the arsonists torched two local synagogues. And less than a month later, a state representative's house was set on fire as she and her family slept. Thankfully, no one was hurt, and the cops eventually caught the guy who did it, a 17-year-old kid who was a member of the first synagogue targeted. Everyone I've spoken to from the area has said it was a terrifying few months, with lots of national attention. By the time the Wells Fargo heist happened, law enforcement was spent.
6: I was home in bed, trying to catch up on some sleep. I got a call from dispatch Uh, indicating that they wanted me to return to duty. When the phone rang, I figured it was another arson fire or something that I was uh, going in for. And whoever called me, I asked them, you know, what's what's this all about? They said, get in here right away. We just had a a robbery at Wells Fargo, and it's a huge robbery. You want to address these things early as you can because you're losing information the longer you go. So we didn't have really a sit-down It was more or less... You do this, you go here, you do that. Police had a
2: slight advantage. Unlike most cases, they already had a suspect, Victor Manuel Herrera, age 25, 5'6", 160 pounds, brown hair, green eyes. They had a description of the car he drove away in, a green 1973 four-door Buick LeSabre. And he knew where he lived, Warner Street, Downtown Hartford, just a 15-minute drive from the Wells Fargo Depot. Plus, they learned one critical piece of information about his personal life. Victor Horena was due to get married in four days.
7: Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for-product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.
3: The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write.
5: Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor.
3: And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu.
5: Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen.
2: At approximately 12.15 a.m., nearly an hour after the Wells Fargo guards freed themselves and called for help law enforcement approached the multi-family building in harford where victor Herrera shared an apartment with his fiance. an armed robber in possession of seven million dollars in cash was on the lam there was no risk too small to take the police were armed and the perimeter of the building secured jack casey was among those present
4: we were outside saying hey we could seal it get a search warrant If you want to consent to a search, save everybody a lot of time. If he's not in there, it'll be quick. We'll go in. We'll get out.
2: Victor's fiance, Anna Soto, poked her head out from the third floor porch. She seemed upset, but also cooperative. According to police reports, she allowed the officers inside to search the home.
4: I remember I had a shotgun and I was searching the room. And I think it was a Doberman. Started coming and growling. And I leveled the gun and I said, hey, you have to get the get the dog and she said okay okay which turns out later on it's like she felt threatened by the shotgun or whatever but in any event at that time I opened the closet and there's a big huge duffel bag so in my mind I'm thinking wow it's here here's the money so now I'm thinking okay he's in here somewhere so now we're looking for him looking for him because we're thinking that's the money eventually after we clear the house we unzip the bag it shoots it shoots
2: The search for Victor proved fruitless. Neither he nor the money was inside that apartment. Though the police did seize a number of Victor's belongings, including his bank book and telephone records, an address book with directions written inside, a letter written in Spanish, a roadmap, a postcard, and most importantly, his passport. Leaving Victor with even less of a chance of fleeing the country. His fiance Anna, said she didn't know where he was. She agreed to go to the station, even riding in the passenger seat of one of the patrol cars, to voluntarily give a statement regarding Victor and what she knew. Back at the station, Detective Steve Luby was waiting for her arrival.
6: I got assigned to see if I could talk her into a written statement and find out what she knew.
2: Luby was tasked to follow up on their two biggest leads at the time. What, if anything, Victor Herrera's fiance might know about the robbery and how police could find the getaway car with Victor and the $7 million in cash tucked away inside?
6: She was a personable kid. She was scared. Before I even got into the background stuff, I remember her saying she was freezing cold. And the office was cold at the time. But oftentimes when people are nervous, they tend to come across really cold too. So I I tried to manipulate the heat in the office by putting the paper clip in the thermostat and driving it up and, and got, her, got her. I wanted to get her comfortable uh, with me and see if I could get her to relax a little before I even started the statement.
2: Luby took his time, hoping to, of course, win over her trust.
6: I don't go right to paper. I, I sit down, try to have a conversation. Because she was frightened. And, and when you look at someone being frightened, you, you don't often know, are, are they frightened because they're part of this, or are they just frightened to be now in a police station addressing a crime that either they were a victim of or a witness to? Try to get that report going. And, and I, I think I was pretty good at getting her comfortable. She seemed comfortable, and she calmed down. She agreed to the statement.
2: Luby knew how important Anna could be within the scope of the investigation. He needed to know if she was telling the truth and says after a while, he got the impression that she wasn't being up front, So he took a more aggressive
6: approach. And I told her he's, he's got guns. He's out there now, every cop in New England, it's going out over the country, has his description. Uh, if you love him, you don't want him to get stopped in the middle of the night some dark corner some cop panics he goes for a gun the cop goes for a gun and and your boyfriend ends up getting killed i you know i i tried to use that angle to have her be more concerned about you know not so much protecting him but getting him safe and uh, making sure he didn't get hurt when he got apprehended it seemed like a
2: scare tactic but I'm not sure that's what Luby thought. He says Anna didn't know what she was stepping into. Because remember, Victor was dangerous. The guy was on the run with two loaded guns and millions of dollars.
6: I wanted to put down on paper that they lived together and that they were engaged to be married. And I think the day before, she'd actually gotten the marriage license certificate or something to get married or whatever it was from City Hall. This was true.
2: The couple had planned to marry days after the heist, her first marriage, Victor's third. It's unclear whether Victor intended to go through with the wedding. Still, as far as Detective Luby was concerned, Anna Soto had been under the impression that they would be married by the end of that weekend.
6: He used to call her before he'd get home. They'd be in voice contact a lot during the night. You know, like two lovebirds. You know, he was on the phone, she was on the phone. And she didn't hear from him that night, apparently, according to her. Uh, we went over relatives uh, of his that, uh, you know, he's apparently, according to her, he was very devoted to his mother, who lived in, in the same general area in the south end of Harvard. He had some brothers that were not local, that he was not close to. Uh, so the statement was basically a chance to get get information on the family, his routines, any close friends. And surprisingly, she he didn't according to her didn't have a lot of male friends or friends even on the job uh he didn't get warm with people on job they didn't go out socialize with people uh, that much and so i'm thinking my cynical mind's thinking that she's covering for some friend that might be involved by telling me he doesn't have a lot of friends so it it went from me feeling that she was probably the fiance that's all upset that knows nothing about this to now as i went on with her i'm thinking She's not giving me everything
2: here. He was right. For the record, here's what Anna said in her statements during the first few days of the investigation, that on the day of the robbery, Victor left home between 10.15 and 10.30 in the morning and caught the bus to work. She said she went with her cousin to get the marriage license at City Hall, took her dogs to the park, and then went home alone. One specific detail Luby took note of was that Anna claimed she'd never seen the green Buick Victor used in the robbery, and that Victor didn't have any friends who owned that type of car.
6: And at some point, I asked her, does he drive a Buick at all? Does that describe the car involved? And she said, absolutely no. We knew Victor had used that night, had driven a, a car that was not normally his car. The car itself, the Buick, it was linked back to the Ugly Duckling or a rental wreck or one of those used car, beat-up rental places. And, you know, we were, they were searching everywhere for the car.
2: Victor, in fact, had driven several different rental cars over the past few weeks, all of which were from the nearby Ugly Duckling Rent-A-Car, a now defunct rental car company that was once considered competition to brands like Budget and Hertz. On August 29, two weeks before the robbery, Victor deposited $200 in cash for a 1977 Chevy Malibu, only to return it the following morning because his, quote, plans hadn't worked out. Ten days later, Victor called Ugly Duckling to reserve another full-size car for the following Monday, the day of the robbery. But he was told the only way he'd be guaranteed a car on that day would be to rent it over the weekend. That second rental, a 1978 Mercury Marquis, was again returned the following day due to the engine catching fire. As a replacement, Victor was given a 1973 Buick LeSabre, the roomy sedan that police were now desperate to find. For Detective Luby, there was one more piece to the mystery besides finding that car.
6: I knew that that car was important in the case because it wasn't his and it could indicate a co-conspirator or, or someone else involved. The guards at uh, at Wells Fargo had indicated that they thought there was more than one person involved in this because they could hear, even though they were restrained and they were away from it, they could hear some kind of conversation in the background of the depot there.
2: Could Victor Horena been working with someone else to pull off the robbery? It's completely plausible, and in fact, even more believable. Looking back and closer at the detailed accounts of what happened, there was one more thing the guards heard as they lay wide awake on the floor while Victor made several trips to and from the car. One honk could arguably be the result of Victor in a hurry to escape with the currency bags. But two consecutive honks? Now that's intentional.
4: Why do you beep the horn? He's not saying goodbye to these two guys. He's saying, I'm coming out.
2: And then there's this. The West Hartford police got word that a car matching the description of the one used in the heist had been located just outside a local airport. It was empty.
6: And of course, then the first thing's thinking, you can get a plane in and out, there's no tower there. Uh, There's no need to report when you land there after hours.
2: This season on White Eagle.
6: And the money shows up. That was traceable money. And I'm thinking to myself, you start to think if something's organized
4: here. If she knew she's a great actress because she was devastated, the FBI in
5: Connecticut never woke up to this thing. It was the FBI in Puerto Rico and put it all together.
2: There were the folks who wanted Puerto Rico to be part of the United States, but other folks felt that that was not what they wanted and they wanted to be their own nation.
5: Things were getting blown up quite a bit and the FBI decided that they were sick and tired of this business. The fact that Puerto Rico still being a colony kind of shows you
6: that they didn't get the support that they wanted. I was ready to engage in gunfire if, if it had to be to protect my comrades from from getting caught. This whole issue has ignited a firestorm of controversy. What we want to know is, why did the president make this decision?
2: White Eagle is written and executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Christina Everett. Additional writing by our supervising producer, Julia Weaver. Our associate producer and script supervisor is Darby Masters. Audio editing and mixing by Jackie Huntington. Our series theme, Forms Regal or Grand, is written by Aaron Kaufman. And special thanks to Arlene Santana and Will Pearson at iHeart Radio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
7: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast
1: So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here.
2: And I'm Austin Hankwitz.
1: We're the hosts of Mind the Business, small business success stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks.